Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today I am so excited to bring to you the interviews from our live podcast recording in DC last month. I was so delighted to host a show all about women and wealth in America. And I had the chance to interview three incredible women you're going to hear from on today's show. Now, today's show is a little longer than our usual, but I just wanted you to have a chance to hear from all three of these incredible women. When I was planning how to put together this show, I really thought about what it looks like to build wealth in real life, like in practical terms. And for me, it really breaks down into three sections that I want all women to feel comfortable with. The first is understanding and mitigating the impact of debt in your life or leveraging debt in a strategic way. The second is earning more. We know that women still aren't being paid equally for equal work in most professions, in most places in this country. So upping your earnings is definitely step two in increasing your overall net worth. And finally, when you get to the point where not 100% of your paycheck is going to your expenses and to debt... How do you leverage those assets? How do you grow money from money in a strategic way? So those are the three sections we're going to break this down with today, slaying your debt, upping your earnings, and stacking your cash. Now, the reason that this is so important isn't just because I'm a capitalistic money fiend. I'm not just those things. (laughs) I really care about the fact that wealth equals power in this world, and that women simply don't have enough of it. When I was doing some research for a chapter in my forthcoming book, Bossed Up, all about growing your power over your own career and life, I was alarmed to find out about the wealth gap between men and women in this country. We hear a lot about the pay gap, which we'll talk more about in Act 2 of today's episode. But the wealth gap, to me, is a better indicator of financial security. And security is important, especially in our burnt out, hyper-stressed world. Feeling a sense of security is in some ways a privilege and also a basic need we have to meet in order to achieve our highest potential. In order to kick ass at work, you can't be worried about whether your rent check is going to bounce. And, you know, part of that anxiety that so many of us are feeling these days stems from financial insecurity. So check this out. I was researching how the wealth gap measures up compared to the pay gap in our country and found this. The wealth gap, which basically compares all of your family's assets, homes, retirement funds, vehicles, cash, 
you know, anything else that has financial value and subtracts all your debts. So loans, mortgages, credit cards, etc. So that metric, your family wealth is a better indicator in some ways of the resources you have to fall back on in an emergency to retire on or to finance your or your children's education. And to me, the wealth gap paints a more accurate picture of who's feeling deep financial anxiety. And the numbers are not good for women and especially women of color. The average single woman in the United States owns just 32 cents for every dollar owned by the average white man. And black and Latino women own less than one penny for every dollar owned by a white man in this country. That is the gap I want to talk more about today. That is the gap I think needs a lot more attention in painting a clear picture over power and privilege that stems from financial security and wealth. So my mission isn't just to get women to feel like the boss of their careers. Feeling like the boss of your own finances is a first foundational step to having the privilege and power to take risks in your career and in your life in other domains too. So to first kick off this show, I sat down with Maggie Germano, who's on a mission to give millennial women the support and tools they need to take control of their money, break the taboo of discussing debt and income, and achieve their goals and dreams. I've had the privilege of working with Maggie for years since she first came to Boston Boot Camp and then navigated her career transition into becoming the kick-ass financial coach she is today. She's since come back through the Boston Trainer Team program to then present at Boston Boot Camp for countless other women and really to live true to our goal to help lift as we climb. She founded a group called Money Circle, which is a safe space for women to talk about money without feeling judged. You can find it on Facebook. And she hosts live Money Circle meetups in Washington, D.C. I'll drop a link to her awesome website in the show notes below. But for now, let's jump right into my conversation with Maggie Germano at our live D.C. show, starting with Act One, all about how to slay your debt. I have always been really passionate about women's empowerment, women's independence. But I was about seven years into my career and didn't know what I was doing and didn't know how I wanted to incorporate that into my career. So I joined Bossed Up Bootcamp. I joined a few other women's organizations in DC. And I was meeting a lot of women who were struggling with money, whether it was student loan debt, credit card debt, not knowing how to budget, feeling very alone or ashamed. And that to me was a feminist issue that had a direct correlation between you know, what they were able to do, what kinds of decisions they were able to make and whether or not they felt empowered and independent. So I started offering support to the women I was meeting just to create a budget for them, help them come up with a plan to pay off debt or just being a sounding board for them. And the more I was doing that, the more I realized that there really was this space needed for women to get help with their money when they didn't necessarily have very much money and to get to a point where they could have a financial advisor and invest later on. So that's why I decided to become a coach, help women work on their relationship with money, their habits and the day-to-day budgeting and started my company that way. How long have you been in business now? Almost three years, but full-time since the beginning of this year. Awesome. And if you want to hear more about Maggie's story, she's featured in the Bossed Up book, aren't you? I am. All right. So Maggie, let's get into it. We know that our generation is dealing with debt in a way that prior generations haven't had to. Over 44 million Americans, myself included, 
have student loans. And the average graduate leaves college with over $33,000 in debt. A new report that just came out the other week from Northwest Mutual found that it's not just 33K that the average person and young person in particular is dealing with. It's more like 42,000. And the majority of that debt is coming from credit cards. So how do we think about debt when it comes to student loan debt versus something like credit card debt or auto debt? Is all debt the same? And how do you begin to start digging out of that hole? Yeah, that's a good question because not all debt is the same. When it comes to the credit bureaus and how they view your debt, there is good debt and bad debt. And I use quotes to say that because I don't think there's a moral judgment on debt and there, we shouldn't think about it that way. But good debt is basically debt that you're taking on as an investment in yourself. So education would be that because theoretically you're going to school, taking on loans so that you can get a better job, earn more money, be able to pay those back, improve your life. So that's considered good debt. Bad debt would be credit card debt. So that's debt that you're incurring that's not really going to get you much back. You're not making an investment in yourself in the eyes of your creditor and the credit bureau. So also with credit card debt, the interest rates are much higher. So you're losing a lot of money by holding onto credit card debt. Student loan debt, especially if it's federal, much lower interest rates, it doesn't grow in this at the same rate as credit card debt might. So I would say focusing as hard as you can on paying down credit card debt to start and doing the minimums on the student loan debt until you're able to pay off the credit card debt will get you in a good position. So how do you approach it? You know, not in the, I'm not even going to look at this because I can't deal with it way. How do you begin to rip off the bandaid, look at what's happening and come up with a prioritized plan? What does that look like with you? Yeah. So kind of what you said, you have to face it. <laughs> it's with money, as with most problems, ignoring them doesn't make it go away. In fact, with money, it makes it much worse. Things get sent to collections, the fees grow. So don't ignore it, start to face it. So I would start by just making a list of the debt. So get a spreadsheet, having it all in one place and knowing like what type of debt is it? What are the interest rates on it? You know, how much are the monthly payments? What can I afford to pay extra? to start at the minimum payments and then figuring out your budget in general for, you know, what's coming in every month, what needs to go out every single month. So your rent, your utilities, the minimum payment for your student loans, any other monthly bills you have and seeing, you know, what do I have left over and can I afford to make even just smaller payments on the credit cards, or if you don't have credit card debt, smaller extra payments on the student loans and starting small is important because you can't go from zero to 60 with money unless you have some kind of windfall. So just starting somewhere and starting small. This might be very simplistic, but I think it's important to break down the difference between paying the interest on our loans or debt and paying down the principal. Those terms get thrown around a lot. And I just want to make sure we're all clear on what that looks like. So if you have a high interest credit card, what would a percentage look like? 17%? I mean, are they that high? They go higher. That's wild. I, I've seen credit cards as high as like 27% interest. Wow. Yeah. So, so what does that mean? Well, especially with like rewards cards, you get really excited because you're like 5% cash back, 1%, 2% on my travel. Like I can go somewhere for free. But if you're getting 5% cash back, but the interest rate is 27% and you don't pay it off every month, you're losing 22% in interest. So that's why those cards, they can be great, but only if you're actually paying them off every month. 
And then with like student loans and with the principal versus the interest, if you're going to make extra payments on the student loan, make sure you're applying it to the principal and not the interest because the interest accrues based on the principal. So you want that principal to go down when you're making extra payments. How would you do that? You would call them? Yes, you would call them, especially if you do an auto pay situation. If you're making extra payments, you want to specify that it should go towards the principal. Yeah. Yeah. They make it hard, in yes. other words. They so really we have to do. pick up the phone. <laughs> they really do. I remember when I was paying off, I was trying to accelerate my loan payment and I had auto pay happening. But if I made an extra payment, it would just cancel my next auto pay and apply that towards my next month. And so I wasn't actually making a dent. So I had to get rid of auto pay and manually make all of my payments every month so that I could pay it down faster. They don't want you to pay it off faster. No, they do not. And they know that we women are busy, mm-hmm. right? We're shouldering a lot of emotional labor in this world. We're handling twice the amount of housework and childcare duties than our average full-time working dudes. And it's tricky. I mean, we lose out money because we don't have time to look at our money. So one of my favorite things about some of what you do with your community online and advocate for on your fantastic Instagram feed is taking a money minute. Can you tell us about that philosophy? What is that all about? Money minute is basically setting aside time specifically to look at your money. So it can be one minute, it can be 15 minutes, it can be once a week, it can be three times a week, it can be every day. It's really whatever makes sense for you and like the way that you like to structure that kind of progress and process. But you have to set that time aside or else, you know, if you're only looking at your budget once a month, it's too late by the time you look at it because you've already spent the money and you didn't know if you were within your budget. So making sure to at least look at your money once a week to know how much is in your bank account, how much you have been spending and what you have left to work with. Yeah. And I almost recommend setting a recurring calendar alert or setting a recurring date with your partner. If you're sharing money with anybody, it's just to make it an intentional recurring part of our lives. So how do you first approach money with the boot? How do you talk about debt during dating? And where do you begin on that? So that's a good question because my blog post this week is actually about that. I am a huge fan of having that conversation really early, especially if it's something that's important to you. If you have financial goals that you feel really passionate about reaching or if, you know, managing your money in a responsible way is something that's important to you. Having that conversation really early is the best way to approach it because everybody gets on the same page. You're aware of what the other person's situation is. So to put Dan on the spot, we were maybe two weeks or three weeks into dating and we were like walking to our date. And I was like, so do you have credit card debt? (laughs) And he was like, uh, yes. And I was like, what's your plan? to pay that off. (laughs) This is before I was a financial coach, so I did not approach it as smoothly, I suppose. (laughs) Seems Um, like it worked out. (laughs) It did. And, you know, that made him start thinking about, oh, what is my plan to pay off this credit card? Maybe I don't have to leave this balance on it and just pay the minimum payments. And so he ended up paying it off pretty quickly after that. And we've been able to continue the conversation where, you know, when we were first dating, we were going out a lot and spending money and having fun. And after a little while, I was like, this is not aligning with my financial goals. Like I want to pay off my student loans fast. And so we need to stop going out to eat as much, maybe go to cheaper places. So being able to have those conversations so that I wasn't getting resentful or frustrated or 
falling back on my goals is really important. And then you can learn about what your partner's goals are. So you can potentially work on them together. You can understand each other a little bit better. You can find out the hangups that each of you have around money, because there's a lot of hangups around money and that's just how it is. But the more that we talk about it, the easier it gets to deal with it. And we can actually start making changes as we go along. You make talking about money sound not at all unpleasant, which is a good thing to know that it doesn't have to be a serious, scary conversation. And it's definitely something we should start talking about more often, which is why we're all here. Did Maggie help us slay our debt or what? Yes. Thank you, Maggie. We'll be right back with act two of the live DC show all about women and wealth right after this quick break. And we're back and it's time to kick off act two of the women in wealth live podcast show. That's all about how to up your earnings. Now to talk more about women's earnings and especially how that compares to our male associates, our male colleagues in the United States, I had the privilege and opportunity to sit down with Gloria Blackwell. She is the Senior Vice President of Fellowships and Programs at the AAUW, the American Association of University Women, where she's responsible for designing and implementing initiatives to expand women and girls' opportunities in non-traditional spaces through leadership. She oversees $4 million in fellowships and grant programs and serves as AAUW's UN main representative, leading global initiatives implemented through collaborations with UN bodies and global coalitions. Now, the week of our live show in D.C. was also the week when the AAUW released its annual report on the simple truth of the wage gap. So you'll hear more from Gloria on where women stand in the United States right now when it comes to comparing our earnings to the average man. So when it comes to upping your earnings, get your notebooks out, get ready for some practical financial advice to grow your wealth with Gloria Blackwell. I wish I had some really great news to tell you about the wage gap. I wish I could tell you that the simple truth is now telling us that the pay gap has been solved and it's all good. But unfortunately, that's actually not true. We're looking at 80 cents for white women and uh, white men. But unfortunately, the figures around Latinas and, and black women have actually gone down. The gap has actually widened instead of closed. So we're really looking at not just a stalling where we hover around minuscule uh, permutations of that 80 cents. We're really looking at the fact that for black women and Latinas, that the gap is not looking so great for us. And that's something that really concerns us. And so I don't want to be too much of the gloom and doom. There is some good news coming later on. But the fact of the matter is, this is something that we should all be concerned about and something certainly that we should all be angry about, that we should be asking the questions and taking action about why have we been stuck in this place for so long, but also how in the world could it actually be getting worse? That's not good. So the simple truth is not so simple. It really is more complicated than than we realize. And the simple truth really talks about the fact that we've done an analysis of a number of different professions and occupations. And what we've really looked at also is the fact that good for pretty much everyone in this room, the 20 to 24 year olds uh, have a very small wage gap. 
So it's about, you know, 90 percent. But unfortunately, as you become more mature, like me, it becomes a little more difficult. And by the time you retire, we're looking at a gap that's pretty significant. So just when you're thinking about retiring, the gap is actually much wider than when you first started out in your career. That's really unfortunate. And that really leaves women in a situation where you have less income to do the things that obviously we all want to do. Not to mention women live longer. Absolutely. So how ironic is it that we live in a world where as women become more mature, as you put it so (laughs) graciously, and need that money more because we're going to be living longer, we earn less. So this is a confounding problem. It feels like seemingly intractable, right? Especially if we're seeing backsliding, which is the theme of the uh, current political situation. Even though this problem seems burly and multifaceted and some people don't even believe it exists, what gives you hope? What in the data gives you some hope that this is a problem we can solve in our lifetime? It really does feel like there's this stubbornness about it and that it's intentional. Because if it wasn't intentional, why wouldn't we have been able to do something about it at this point in the game, right? I'm feeling hopeful because in one aspect, because of young women, you know, women who will be listening to this podcast and women who are here who understand that we can't continue to have a day when we all get together and say, we're outraged that women aren't earning the same as men. Latina Equal Pay Day is November 1st. You know, if you can imagine that Latinas have to work until November 1st of this year to earn what white men earned as of December 31st of 2017. And so knowing that there is energy about making sure that we don't keep having these same conversations, that's encouraging to me. At AAUW, we've decided with our new strategic plan that we're going to end the pay gap by 2030. And that as a part of it, we're going to train 10 million women in salary negotiation by 2022. We've decided we're not going to keep talking about it. We're going to do something about it. And that gives me hope. And also that the conversation has been elevated and the conversation has gotten a bit of energy, right? Celebrities. Okay. Maybe we don't care so much if you didn't get 5 million that you thought you should get, right? But if celebrities raising the issue and raising everyone's consciousness about how unfair it is, is actually encouraging an hourly wage worker to say, you know what, actually, this isn't fair. That also is important. And really, we're encouraged by the fact that people are attacking the pay gap in ways that are really important, in ways that are going to hopefully have some systemic change. And that's really at the legislative house and at the ballot box. I really feel that the fact that we have in the past few years seen more laws being passed locally and federally around policies and that really impact women's pay, that that's important. So right now we have 48 states 
that have passed some measure of a pay equity law. Now, some are better than others. Let's not get too excited, right? Some are just for show. But the fact of the matter is that's important that those states have done that. And so they've made sure that the way that we are going to approach it, because clearly what we've been doing is not working, right? The laws on the books aren't being enforced and we need new laws. So we've put in many states, you cannot ask about prior salary history, right? So the salary ban is important because why do you care what I made at my last job when I was underpaid? And how can that be the basis for my new job, right? We're also looking at ways that, you know, you're not going to be punished for discussing your salary with your coworker, getting more information so you can find out if you're actually being paid fairly. If you don't know what the pay bands are at your job, you don't know what the ranges are, how do you know? And if you're nervous about asking your coworkers about their salary because you feel that you're going to be punished or retaliated against, that's not going to help us have more transparency. And transparency really is key. Absolutely. So the employers who are here tonight or the employers who are listening to this podcast who want to get ahead of the curve and show that they actually value gender equality in the workplace. We don't have to wait for federal legislation to mandate this, right? We can start implementing policies around pay transparency, stop asking about salary history in the interview process. And especially when we're posting job descriptions to post the expected pay along with it. And one thing we all can do as individuals, besides dodging the salary question mid-interview, which to date is my most popular YouTube video, 22,000 views and counting. I'll drop it in the show notes of this episode as well if anyone's missed it. But also let's not pass on job positions to our friends to help fill those positions unless there's a salary stipulated on it. And you can write back to that person who's trying to recruit for this position. I will be glad to pass this on to my community full of talented women once you list out the salary requirements on that or salary expectations on their job description. So those are small ways we can revolutionize this and demand as a competitive workforce that we are, that we get ahead of the curve. But yes, we can also run for office and elect badass people who believe in gender equality. (laughs) That would help. (laughs) That's right. So for individual women like us, especially those of us here who are thinking, you know what? I could do with paying down my debt a little faster. I could save a little faster if I was bringing home a grand more a month or 10 grand more a year. What are some ways to start upping your income or think about upping your income? One of the things that I find interesting about the wage gap is that it does seem to fluctuate amongst different industries and different geographies. So tell us a little bit about that. And that, that's a great idea because we're not all going to be paid fairly. That clearly is the solution. So that not being possible, one of the ways is we think about career transitions. You know, research really shows us that these days people stay in their jobs about three years. My generation, you know, you were really hopeful that you would get that job and then you would be in that job and you hopefully you you wouldn't die at your desk. But the fact of the matter is people are very fluid and they're looking at opportunities and also looking at industries. You know that we talk about STEM fields a lot. AEW has done a tremendous amount of research around women in STEM. 
We provide fellowships, about 40% of our work to women in STEM. We know that you're going to get a higher salary, but you're still going to have a pay gap, right? You're still going to have a pay gap. And you're also going to deal with other kinds of discrimination that go along with being in a traditionally male dominated field. And so we have many industries such as finance and other areas where finance and CEOs and surgeons and lawyers and and ways that we see there are huge opportunities to earn larger salaries and there are larger collective pay gaps in those particular industries. And, you know, but also it's about what your values are about work. It's about also, you know, what your skills and interests are. You know, everyone thinks that, you know, I'm going to go out and get me that side hustle. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be bringing in that extra money. And sometimes it's not that easy. But it really is, I think, also important that you think about if I have my undergraduate degree and I've been working in this job and I'm a sociology major and all of a sudden I decide I want a career in high finance, Well, that's a big skills change. I already have student debt. Do I have the money to take on more student debt? What kind of training am I going to need in order to transition into that career? Even though when I get there, clearly I'm going to be bringing in more bucks. That's really important as well. But it's not an easy cost benefit analysis, is it? It's not. And also when we talk about transitions, you know, I remember in in part of our fellowship program, we have a grant where women who are transitioning in careers, who are returning to the workforce or, you know, looking to increase or get a promotion in their careers. We had a, a participant who had an undergraduate degree and she came to us for funding because she was interested in learning how to become an automotive technician. And so she got a certificate and got an incredibly high paying job. So it's also about thinking about, you know, what are our assumptions about work, our assumptions about women's work. You know, we could earn lots of money if we entered into, I don't know, putting solar panels on homes. You earn a lot of money. You only need a high school diploma. You don't see many women doing that, right? You don't. And I'm a huge like micro fan in that, we need to bring back the trades and make it honorable to be a trades person, not just a tradesman, but anyone here listen to stuff mom never told you back in the day, my podcast debut with the one and only Bridget Todd. We did a great episode on women in the trades. I'll link to it in the show notes. And there is absolutely money to be made there, especially for those who are listening and who are thinking a four-year degree is not really working out. Not everybody needs a four-year degree and there's money to be made in the trades for sure. I think that's a really excellent point. Let's talk a little bit about the AAUW's Work Smart negotiation course. How can women increase their earnings without necessarily leaving their day job? So even according to the simple truth, one of the ways that we can look at increasing our earnings is obviously negotiating 
first job that you're getting or you're going to a new job or for a promotion. Then that includes not just salary, but your benefits. And so WorkSmart is a program that AAUW has been doing for a number of years. We've trained tens of thousands of women, and it really provides women with the opportunity to be able to, you know, articulate their value, right, to really be able to put forth what they're going to bring to a company or an organization, what they have to offer. It helps us to, you know, put forth how we can learn techniques and negotiation strategies so that when we get to that point where they're just saying, well, how much do you want? We know how to deflect. We've done our market research and it really gives us the tools and the methodology to be able to benchmark a salary so that we know what we're basing it on and that we know what our walkaway point is, that we know that we're asking for a fair salary and that our salary isn't something that you know, it's because that's how much my girlfriend makes or the guy in the cube. I heard him talking to his friend and that's what he makes. And I think I should be making that, too. Right. So it really is an opportunity for women to learn those techniques. And it really isn't about shaming women or blaming women because we are in a situation not of obviously of our own uh, making. But because you really you can't negotiate your way out of discrimination. Right. And we know that in large part, a lot of this is due to discrimination. But if you have the capacity to learn these skills and be able to know these are the skills that I have, this is what I have to offer. You know, these are my accomplishments. These are opportunities that you can use, you know, not just in negotiating your salary. You're going to use these skills throughout your career. You're going to use them in different parts of your life when you learn how to look at someone and their body language and, you know, you're learning how to deflect in these different kinds of ways. Trust me, they're very helpful in other areas of your life. Like dating. It always comes back to dating somehow. No, but I'm such a negotiation geek. I can't agree with this more. It's actually something we can all practice and improve upon. Nobody's born an expert negotiator, but knowing that there are resources available to practice, to role play, even though it feels weird and nerdy, it pays off. And now I'm kind of too into negotiation sometimes. I'm like, who can I negotiate with? Let me look at my vendors here and see if I can get a better deal. But it's real. And leaving the table, feeling like everybody feels respected and paid properly is the start of a productive, healthy and sustainable working relationship. That's absolutely right. And, you know, WorkSmart, we have been doing in person across the country and in communities large and small. We have a new initiative that we launched a few months ago to train one million women in Kansas and Missouri. Thank you. You set subtle goals at the AAUW. we, We put that 10 million and we figured we'd knock out one million right away. You know, why not just get rid of those one million? And we do have a huge initiative right here in Washington, D.C., in partnership with uh, Mayor Bowser's office. But we realized also that, you know, one woman at a time, one workshop at a time, is it going to get us where we need to go? And so WorkSmart is actually going online. We will be launching that. They're now behind the scenes, all the little coding elves are back there fixing it up 
and it will be live this week. And so that's an important thing because you'll be able to take it, you know, in your own place and at your own pace. And it will be not limited to if you can come to a venue. So we're really excited about the fact that it can be for, you know, women in rural areas where we may not have access to this kind of training. And that really, I think, is going to change the game around salary negotiation, because, you know, when you leave that room and you leave money on the table, you know, someone comes in behind you and they pick it up. Let's give it up for Gloria. Thank you so much. I'll drop those links to all of the AAUW resources that Gloria mentioned in the show notes below and hope you'll follow up with their excellent resources to help up your earnings right now. And let's dive into act three of the live DC podcast show all about women and wealth. This final segment all about stacking your cash or thinking critically about investments, retirement funds, resources that you can use to grow your wealth once you have a little extra that's not going directly to the roof over your head or slaying your debt in order to increase your net value, your net worth over the course of your lifetime. To dive into this conversation, I sat down with my financial advisor, Chris Caruso with the Bump Financial Group. Now, for full disclosure, I'm a little biased here because Brad and I ended up hiring Chris ourselves this past year to really help focus on our familial finances after years of featuring Chris at Bossed Up Bootcamp. So you'll hear more about our relationship as we dive into today's interview but first, a little bit about Chris. She's a financial advisor with a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services called Bump Financial Group. She's based in D.C. and believes in teaching women about money, finances, and investing. And she works with women who are starting their careers, running households, small businesses, and leading big companies. In her current role as a financial advisor, she works with her clients to be confident about their financial decisions and to invest in line with their values. So let's jump right into my conversation about stacking your cash with Chris Caruso. What do we do to grow wealth? Which I almost feel like is a dirty word. I'm a right? progressive. I'm as progressive as they come, right? Right. But there's nothing wrong with growing wealth because that's what helps us change the world. It does. And I think we have to change that perception that, wealth is bad because it it's a tool it's a resource and a tool like anything else like time like energy like anything and so when we have that money we have the ability to do good with that money so not only are we doing good for our people for our families for our children getting them into a position where they have things that maybe we never had the opportunity to have, but for our communities, like really feeling confident to write that check, to create an endowment, like to create wealth building strategies that you can change the world with. So this is really important because it's bigger than all of us. I love it. <laughs> so let's talk about investing 101 because yeah. we know that Sorry, want, want, more bad news. There's another gap out there. It's getting a little redundant here, but this is the status quo we've been living in. Yeah. Women do not invest to the same extent that men do. In fact, a lower percentage of us have started saving for retirement, which arguably we need more than our lovely right. men who tend to, to croak earlier than we do. 
So we tend to, as women, have less saved for retirement, have started saving for retirement later. And it shows here that women seem to park 68% of our money in cash, not bonds and stocks and Wall Street. So how do we begin to close the investment gap? I feel like so much of that is education and confidence. Like it's a combination of those two magical things. Like understanding where to put your money, what to do with it when you're ready to make those investment decisions, like what to do with it, where does it go? What I find really interesting is that women are actually better investors than men. So when we do put our money to work for us and when we do invest in the market, we actually earn, some reports say half a percent, some say one to one and a half percent more than men. But part of why is because we take less risk. It's the same reasons why we make better executives and you know better all kinds of things. We do more research and we take less risk, which in turn actually gets us better returns. So over 20 years, that 1% is a huge compounding amount of money. What often keeps us from doing that is that confidence. So we do more research and we research this fund and we research this money manager and we research this financial advisor and then we don't do anything. Some of that is actually doing it. So, you know, Maggie talked about and you've talked about that, you know, effort fund and having your, I like to call it the emergencies and opportunities fund, having your slush bucket full it's that next step. It's that money that you need to have on hand for those things that aren't emergencies, like Christmas, <laughs> that you know in January are going to happen in December, and that we set aside money every month to have. Um, so it levels out cash flow. So, but we're not talking about cash flow. We're going to talk about investments. But once your slush fund is full and your EO fund is full, what do we do with the rest of that money? We start investing it. Actually, we then start talking about goals. We talk about time horizon. We talk about risk, but we can't let those things create paralysis. We can't let fear of losing money either in the market or taking risk in the market, or more importantly, when we're women making a bad or a perceived bad or wrong decision about money to be the thing that keeps us from doing it. Absolutely. I, when I got my first big girl job out of college, was working technically for the Democratic National Committee as a state director for Organizing for America, the extension of the Obama campaign. And I got a packet of whatever information that you get when you get hired. And it said something about a 401k. And I thought, I need to prove myself worthy of having this job. You know what I should do right away? Completely ignore that packet for like three years and do my job and do it so well that I'm sure I will be rewarded with praise and promotions and more money. And what happened to that 401k? Nothing, like absolutely nothing. I called the number three years later and they said, you know, you have money as cash in this account that never got into the market and it was a matched 401k, but I never made a decision about where to put it because of analysis paralysis and my lack of basic understanding of investing. So if we could go back in time and have a little conversation with 23-year-old Emily and say, read the damn packet and call the number when you get the packet, what would you say to a total newbie investor? Do it. 
(laughs) Just to take that time and to use your resources, because you also probably had at that job, someone that came in and did some education around it. So anybody who offers a 401k is required to offer education on that 401k. So once or twice a year, you've got somebody from whatever company sponsors your 401k that'll come in and they'll say, yeah, based on your age and your, how much you're putting in, you should do this. That is better than nothing. Is it the best right investment scenario for you? Maybe. We work off of this standard of what is called feasible or appropriate. So it's a very, very broad general recommendation, but it is better than cash. Yeah. You know, there's target date funds. There's decisions you can make that don't require you to have to do a lot of research. So you pick what's closest, you pick what feels right, you pick one of those nice blended funds, you talk to the person who comes to your office once a year during open enrollment, and you ask them. Right. So tell us about some of those funds that are available, because 23-year-old Emily thought you had to pick a single stock of a single company one at a time. Right. And turns out, There are mutual funds to start with. There are ETFs. Mm -hmm. I think I remember that. I'm a little wiser now than I was 10 years ago. There's lots of these funds that are basically samplers, samplers of companies that are publicly traded on Wall Street. So tell us about what it means to have a target date fund and, and which you highly recommend based on who you see here today. Yeah. I mean, so when we talk about choosing an appropriate investment, we talk about risk. Risk is connected to the amount of time you can invest your money. So if somebody comes to me and said, I want to put all my money in the market, I'm going to buy a house in three years. We're going to have a conversation about what to do with that money because that money is going to want to have different risk because we don't want to invest that money in 2005 and have you want to buy a house in 2008 or 2009 because you'd lose 30% of that. And that money's job is to be there for you. But if you are in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, and you don't need this money for 30 or more years, you have time to ride out the ups and downs of the market. If I'm talking to a room of 60-year-olds, we're going to have a different conversation because risk is related to time. So if we have time to ride out the ups and downs in the market, these target date funds, they're not always perfect, but they're better than nothing. If you hire an advisor, bring your sheet into that advisor and say, here's my investment choices. Please pick these for me. They will do it for you. I do it all the time. (laughs) But the target dated funds, they're going to be a mix of mutual funds. They're going to be a mix of bonds. It's going to be a smattering of all the different classes of investments that are going to be in proportion to the amount of time you have in the market. So obviously the more time, so a 2050 fund is going to be way more aggressive than a 2025 fund they're year dated. So think about the year that you might think about retiring. And that's probably a good place to start. And just to be clear, aggressive in this case means willing to take more risks for a potentially higher reward. Yes. And And more volatility and potentially more loss when the markets are down. Right. Yeah. So you got to risk it to get the biscuit kind of a situation is what I'm hearing, but the risk can change over time. So we can set up a fund Mm -hmm. where 20 year old Emily can risk it and 50 year old Emily doesn't want to risk it. And that automates the reduction of risk over time. Cool. Yeah. So what about if you think perhaps theoretically that wall street 
is run by a bunch of crooks <laughs> who already bankrupted our nation once, got bailed out and got rich while the rest of us on Main Street were still figuring out how the hell to buy a house, which a lot of us are still trying to figure out. And you don't really want to plus one that. You don't want to endorse that. Right. But it doesn't seem like there's another place to grow your money very well. Is there a way to do well on Wall Street without compromising your morals? Yeah. I don't know. About two years ago, the Rockefeller Foundation divested all of their investments from petroleum and gas. So I always say that if the Rockefellers can do it, we can do it. There are ways to invest with your values. There are ways to pick and screen for the things that are important to you. There's sort of two schools of thought in terms of socially responsible investing. So there's as many ways to be socially responsible as there are things that you can believe in. So um, when somebody comes to me and asks for socially responsible investing, I am actually using more ESG screens, which is environment social and governance. So, and what I am looking for is sustainability. I'm looking for workplace practices. I'm looking for board diversification. I'm looking for those kinds of things as a general rule here in DC with the kinds of people that I work with. But there's also socially responsible funds where you can screen in or out for just about anything. There's a really great website called Social Vest, which has a list and lots of screening tools. There's resources out there. More and more companies, Tia Kref, Fidelity, are offering them in your 401k choices. They're not broadly available, but outside of those plans, it's easier. You aren't always sacrificing returns. There's a lot of research out there that's showing the returns on socially responsible funds are just as good, sometimes better than non-screened funds, but there's definitely a way to do that. I'm also a big fan of shareholder activism. So when you, you guys know, you get these packets in the mail, probably around springtime, and they say, prospectus, blah, 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 vote, vote, vote. How many? Yeah, you guys are nodding your heads. Like, I get these in the mail. So because you own mutual funds, you own equities. So you are shareholders. You are owners of these companies in these funds. You have the ability as an equity owner to vote for the boards of directors for these companies. So shareholder activism basically says that as a shareholder, I have the right to vote against or for these people who are running for corporate boards most people do not send these forms in <laughs> or look at them or this read news them. to me. People so, just, you know, and yeah. if you get all your stuff online, you'll get an online proxy, but you get these proxies in the mail. And so I always remind my clients that you have one really great way of investing socially is through activism as a shareholder and voting those proxies. So do it. Don't Love. just throw those pieces of paper away. Love it. Again, it all comes back to women being too busy yeah, to like right, right? to make our voices heard sometimes. So I'm I'm still on the leisure campaign. Let's win more leisure time for women and the world would be a better place and a more financially and fiscally prudent place. <laughs> so 
I have a question for you that's a little bit of an oddball question since we could talk all night about mutual funds and the stock market and 401ks, which are some of the most common and universal employee wealth creation strategies, right? But we've also got some entrepreneurial folks and maybe even entrepreneurially minded employees here tonight. As we continue to find out and design whatever kind of a lifestyle works best for us. Mm -hmm. Maybe we get ourselves a little doggy. Maybe we decide to hop into this institution of marriage. Like also FYI, Chris just did because she just got married like a week and a half ago to her lovely partner, Tina. Congratulations. I had to find a way to just weasel that in because I'm so excited for you. So then we might want to do something like buy a house, which is something you and Tina recently did. What vehicles like buying a house are out there to grow our wealth through growing, I forget the word, but assets that actually have a return on that investment. Right, right, right. Yeah. So one of those ways is leverage. Using debt smartly. Using, and Maggie talked about that, but using debt smartly. A mortgage. It's a great way to grow wealth because as we factor in that net worth number, the house value is appreciating over time. It's a long-term hold. You're paying down that debt. It's adding to your net worth. Real estate can be another way to grow wealth. It's tricky. It's complicated. It isn't easy. It feels like it here in a DC market, but around the country, it is not as easy as it feels like in some of the bigger cities, but it's also another way to build wealth if done smartly. Growing a business. Yeah. Start a business. If you're entrepreneurial minded and you're going to start a business, you eventually have something maybe you could sell for a lot of money whether it's your business, whether it's your ideas, whether it's a client list, whatever that is. And all of that is leverage, leveraging yourself, leveraging your knowledge, leveraging your skills, and really just keep growing and growing. Absolutely. And I plus one all of that and also like to say proceed with skepticism, (laughs) with a healthy amount of skepticism, because there's lots of people whose businesses are convincing other people to start businesses. Mm -hmm. I don't need to go on my multi-level marketing scheme tirade here tonight because I already have an entire podcast on that, which I'll link to below. But know that there are people who have a vested financial interest in saying, pay me $5,000 and I will give you the magic secret key to owning your own business and making money off of it. You've not gotta, that kind of business. No. Uh, yeah. And you've got to do your due diligence, do. not just you risk do. it to get the biscuit. Sometimes yes. it's do your yes. research and talk to an actual financial advisor yeah. as well. Where else can women learn about investing and about wealth creation strategies? Because this stuff does feel like it's flying over my head on occasion. Right. So there used to be a point in time where, you know, you would go to see a financial advisor and it was probably a white guy as old as your dad. Our industry is changing. So there are more and more women in our industry or in my industry. Go see one of them. Talk to one of them. We believe in empowering women around money and investing. If you look online, Motley Fool, LearnVest, there are so many places online to get good financial information If you don't want to meet with an advisor or can't find a group of women talking about money, 
do some reading, do some research. There are some really great places to find out about money. I always say that you should spend as much time learning about money concepts, investing concepts as you do planning your vacations. You probably should really spend more time doing that. But think about how much time you spend looking for the cheapest flight. If you can spend (laughs) that much time or more learning about money concepts, the amount of confidence that you have in investing and in money ideas will grow exponentially. And it'll probably save you more than Expedia saves you. Probably. It'll grow you more than Expedia saves you. (laughs) So real. I love it. And I think the biggest takeaway here and whatever it is, don't let analysis paralysis happen to you. You don't need to know everything before you take your first step. And you also don't need to take that first step alone. No. No, no. Awesome. Like just, just do it. Do it. Damn it. 23 year old Emily. Where were you when I needed you, Chris? All right. Well, you've got me now. Once again, I'll drop links to Chris's website and all kinds of places you can learn more about her great work. And now I want to hear from you. What did you take away from this conversation? Was it something from Maggie's interview about slaying your debt? Something from Gloria about upping your earnings? Or perhaps something from Chris about stacking your cash? Is it possible for us to reframe our mindsets around wealth as not being a bad thing to pursue, but rather being as important as security and power and purpose in our lives? What would that look like for you? What would it look like to make adjustments in our lives right now, in our careers and our routines to make growing your wealth a priority. I want to hear what you've taken away from these interviews today. Take a screenshot of today's episode if you enjoyed it and want to share it with the women in your world who you know could use it too. And most importantly, what questions does this episode leave you wrestling with? If you were at the live show in DC, you had the chance to ask questions of each of our three guests after their interview segments. But we had to trim things back for the podcast version today. So if you want to ask a question of these three incredible women, make sure to contact them via the links dropped in the show notes below or shoot me a message on social media at Emily Aries or Bossed Up ORG. I'm always dying to hear what you thought of each episode and whether you feel like we missed something, there's something more you'd like us to dive deeper on or... If it's changed your life in some way, if it's impacted your approach to building power and wealth for yourself. And in the meantime, let's stay in pursuit of our purpose and together we'll lift as we climb. Let's face it. Speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Jahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. 
Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup. 